the Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mysteries of life. This podcast is a compliment to the Numinous School, my online intuition development program for people who want their self-awareness to serve a greater good. Registration for the Numinous School only happens once a year in spring. I'll tell you how to find out more about that after the interview. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, and today on the podcast, I'm connecting with Pashta Merrymoon. Pashta is a death doula, a Wiccan, a Quaker, and as I learned today, also a longtime fan of Jesus. I would describe Pashta as a compassionate radical. She's a longtime grassroots organizer and frontline support worker for various marginalized populations, and her current focus is on death care alternatives in Canada. To say she's a singular presence is an understatement, and I was so lucky to be able to hang out with Pashta in person for this interview. We were sitting on her bed, looking out at her view of the Olympic Mountains here on Lekwungen Territory in Victoria, BC. Pashta, what identities do you lead with? Hmm. Well, I am white, although I don't tend to focus on that very much. I'm a lesbian, um, mother of two children with five grandchildren, um, and what else? I've always been just a bit pushy. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I'm okay with identifying pushy. with that. It's just <laughs> kind of like, if I think something's right, I just go ahead and do it, and if it's against the rules, well, that's too bad. <laughs> my mother tells me I did that all the time when I was a little kid. It mm. definitely is part of my character. Mm. Um, not that I can't be intimidated. I can very easily be intimidated. But um, I think part of, of my life growing up, a lot of it, okay, I won't get into a lot of this, but grew up in an abusive household where I was the oldest, so I had to be the protector. Mm. So there's a long time background of um, feeling a responsibility to stand up for certain kinds of things that I believe is right, even though other people don't agree with me. Mm. So, mm. yeah, it's a um, long time piece mm. of who I am, I think, and, and is behind a lot of the things that I've chosen to do with my life. Mm. I'm a little surprised that you haven't said anything about being, I don't know, like an artist or bon vivant or spiritual, you know, something or other, because the way you move through the world with such presence and, and also you have like a bold sense of style. You have a very distinct kind of way of being in the room that, you know, people sit up and notice <laughs> like, oh, Pashta's here, Right. And even your name, Pashta Merriman. It's like, oh, there's something about this woman that is um, very singular and very much of herself. <laughs> well, actually, you know what? I'm just old. <laughs> I, you know, I had a man, uh, I was walking along the road, and this man stopped right in, the, in an intersection and you know, hung his head out the door, and he said, are you an old hippie? And I said, yes. And he said, right on. And it's like, you know, really. <clears throat> that's enough. Like the way, that's the way I think of it. Mm. I'm an old hippie. I never became a yuppie. Right. Right? Okay. <laughs> so, okay. 
And then a lot of what became hippie became kind of the dress code and style for people who were Wiccan. Oh, I see. Right? And mm-hmm. so that just kind of carried on. And mm. So I'm, do you identify as Wiccan? I do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have a much more universalist metaphysical approach mm. um, to all religions, and including Wicca. Mm-hmm. Um, I, don't re- I don't really believe in deities. I believe in that the universe is a whole, it has energies that keep it a whole, keep it dynamic, and that those we can put faces on mm. that fit our cultures Mm-hmm. Um, and that our need to relate to those energies. But it's, you know, the, the pictures we're drawing them of them are our pictures. It's not a picture of it. It's our representation of it. Mm-hmm. And so, I, um, although I can use, you know, the, the different kinds of deities that, it, that exist in different pantheons in Wicca, they're very much a, just a way of connecting to an energy. Mm-hmm. Right? And so... Um, there is something special that happens in Quaker meeting, in Wiccan ritual, in a Catholic mass, in a, you know, a Muslim temple. I mean, there's something magical that happens in all of them. And sort of magical, spiritual. And um, I'm not sure one is particularly better than the other. I don't, mm-hmm. you know, I don't like the patriarchy in some of them, but mm-hmm. you know, other than that, what how they feed the spiritual person to me is it's like, well, if that's if that's what works for them, if that's what speaks to them, and you know, that what they they get spiritual nourishment from, then they should just do it. Mm. And it doesn't matter what the name of the god or the goddess is, or you know. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, so you're not very dogmatic in your approach. In other no. Words. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that, that makes sense to me. Now, I've long admired your tattoos, the ones that I can see, and I'm curious if any of them have any special stories that you'd be willing to share. Every single one of them. I won't put it on my body unless it, like, uh-huh. almost everything on my body is symbolic. Mm-hmm. The jewelry I wear, the colors mm-hmm. I wear, everything is mm-hmm. symbolic, right? I think that's part of the reason I don't talk about being a spiritual person, because because it's pretty uh, self-evident. I can well, just look at you and, and say, so this is a person who moves <laughs> with meaning. <laughs> that's a good way of put it, putting it. Yeah, that I just, I don't, I don't do a lot of things that are done just because that's what you do. I, mm-hmm. I do them because they have meaning to me, right? Mm-hmm. And I certainly wouldn't put something permanent on my body mm-hmm. unless it had a strong meaning for me. So my very first one is the pentacle and, and moon on the back of my right hand and that was in 78 Mm. and it was a commitment Mm. to never deny being wicked you know the whole Mm -hmm. peter denying who he was Mm -hmm. etc and so i just made a decision that you know that this would be the most obvious place except my face and i didn't want that to control Mm. my facial interaction with people Mm. so i put it on the back of my right hand um I like that. That's very <laughs> inspiring. Like you can't you could unless you were wearing gloves all the time. I mean you couldn't deny. You'd put the mark of your spirit right on your hand. Yeah. That's and beautiful. I must admit I have put bandages over it when I crossed the border. Because yeah. not so much now, but back when I first got the tattoo, 
if you're a woman and you had a tattoo, there must be something really wrong right. with you. Yeah, you're shifty you know, and rough. You know. Yeah. What are you coming down here to do? <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. So okay. I did pretend when I crossed the border, but otherwise, no. Right. Okay. So it would be very easy to imagine just seeing you walk down the street that you were a Wiccan priestess for sure, but maybe not so much a Quaker. Not at all. <laughs> so how did how did your Quaker practice come into your life? Um, it actually came before I realized I was Wiccan. Like I, mm. you know, I I started being being Wiccan in my childhood, my early childhood. But it wasn't until my twenties that I realized, okay, that whole progression I've gone through in my childhood, with my understanding of spirit and spiritual mythology, we'll call it, mm-hmm. um, is actually, it fits a Wiccan mold. It doesn't fit the typical Christian mold. Mm-hmm. And I knew that, you know, I knew all along. My understanding of Jesus was not the same as other Christians <laughs> at all. You know? mm-hmm. um, so I, um, try and make it fairly short, I was married, had a little, a daughter, my husband and I uh, wanted to live in an intentional community. We had gone, we lived in the East then. We had gone around um, the Eastern states looking for places and never found anything quite right. There was the farm, you know, with Stephen, somebody or another, you know. The cult? You know. Yeah, <laughs> essentially, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we talked to them, but they didn't want any um, young moms because... At that point, they really needed everybody to be able to work, you know, you know, eight hour days and not take off with children. And um, so I had gone where my husband and I met was the first Summer Hill type school in Canada, the very first year of it. What's Summer Hill? Summer Hill is called a free school. Okay. Right. So you develop your own program for what you want to learn. A bit like unschooling, sort like you're of, following yeah. the child's curiosity and creating a rich environment, and yeah. kind of it'll all come from that. Okay. Yeah. So there was a group of people in radical people in Toronto who developed on the basis of Summerhill in England, developed Everdale, which was the first um, school of that type in Canada, and that's where my ex and I uh, met, and. Um, Later on, a couple of years later, two of the teachers who had been part of that school moved into the eastern Ontario area and were close to us then, and we were talking about developing intentional community with them. And um, one, one, i make this story shorter. (laughs) Okay, they had never been to a Quaker meeting but they had friends who were Dukabors. And Dukabors, oh. if they don't have a community, often come to Quakers. Mm-hmm. So their Dukabor uh, friend said, why don't you come to meeting with us? And so they said, okay. And so they'd gone a couple times, and we were there with them for the weekend. And they said, we'll drive you back into town. Why don't you come to the meeting with us just to see what it's like? And we thought, well, if we're going to live with them, and they're going to choose to be Quakers, we should know what this is about, <laughs> right, at least. <laughs> so we went to the meeting, and afterwards, someone invited us home for lunch. And instead of telling me what Quakers were all about, she said, what do you believe? Mm. And uh, so I talked about what I believed. I was 18 at the time. Mm. And, uh, and she just said, you know, 
you might already be a Quaker. And that was it. I mean, from then on, I know. Yeah. Like for the first five years, I didn't even miss one meeting, you know, wow. just, um, except when we were traveling, but otherwise, mm-hmm. no. Um, hmm. It just, it, you know, it, it felt comfortable. And I think part of what spoke to me was the fact, the lack of dogma, the lack of creed, because I had grown up with this really strong, to go backwards a little bit, really, 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 really profound relationship with Jesus, but it had nothing to do with the Christian story. Mm-hmm. It was very much my own. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot, like I did not talk about my spirituality at all because I knew that it's like, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like, no, that's not Jesus. That's not Jesus we know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but I, I felt like, not that I could just, you know, open up about, my spiritual relationship with him and how that had affected all of my spirituality. But somehow like, there was room for the wisdom of that, mm-hmm. right? Um, that I didn't have to fight for the legitimacy of the feeling, even if people didn't agree with right. the words around it, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I find it fascinating, but not unsurprising, that you were led to Quakers through Dukabors, because aren't they the ones who protest by getting naked? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like there's like a certain kind of free spiritedness about the Duke of Wars. It's like, of course, that's how Pashta found out about Quakers. It's like the, it's the gateway religion. Um, I would you be willing to talk a little bit about the difference between your relationship with Jesus and what you experienced in in sort of a Christian upbringing? How was it different when you say that, like, oh, that's not the relationship <laughs> other Christians were having? Well, um, okay, so there's this background of this violence going on in the family, right? So just leave that in the background. We don't need to go into that. But um, when uh, my parents were split up for a short period of time after some real bad stuff happened, and I was sent to live with my aunt, and she was the organist at a church, so she introduced me. The church was my first introduction to Christianity because both of my parents are atheists. Oh. Hmm. And so somehow or another, that you know, that's where I sort of picked up the original image. But then we moved out into the country, and I don't know how it happened, Carmen, but Jesus became my older brother, and he would be out in the woods because we lived in the middle of a sugar bush. And so I would go out into the woods, and there were certain places that he told me. I mean, this is my invisible brother, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Told me these were sacred places, and so I would, you know, make a little stone altar and put put some logs in for pews and stuff. Mm -hmm. It was the Mm -hmm. only representation I had. Mm -hmm. And I found that also I could talk to him and it's not like I really believed he talked back to me but somehow things got clearer as I talked to him mm-hmm. so he was my saving grace mm. through my childhood with all this violence going on you know back of the house about how old were you when this started um I would have been about eight years old Aww. I mean the, the violence had gone on earlier than that but mm-hmm. but identifying Jesus as my older brother right mm-hmm. and part of it too was because I was the oldest and I was having to play the stereotypical older brother mm-hmm. role of protect the two younger ones so I think that you know part of me needed an an, an older brother for me yeah, you know? someone <laughs> to hold you and be your container right mm-hmm. exactly and then um, as I became a teenager, I realized that my relationship with Jesus was turning into 
girlfriend, boyfriend, mm-hmm. lover, but without the sex part. Right. But right? oh, like a roomy and um, uh, sha- uh, what, what's roomy's part? He, you know, the beloved, right? Yeah. It's like yeah. how in his poetry, he, he, it's so romantic but it's 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 a it's a sacred relationship yeah. not a not a sexual erotic kind right. of thing yeah. okay um how however i met my husband when i was 14 mm-hmm. and i chose him because he was the person who looked most like jesus really well, yeah. it's like pretty hot right <laughs> yeah. yeah that makes sense to me and of course <laughs> I, and I, as you know i have an obsession with long hair mm-hmm. right so anybody who Anybody, yeah. male or female, grows their hair long, they get right. extra checks from me. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and actually, when we got married, I made him a coat of many colors. Oh, yeah. To wear. Wow. <laughs> so I have all of this weird, I mean, it is funny because a lot of my um, spirit, uh, Wiccan spirituality is based on not just Christianity, but the Sumerian Babylonian mythology is mm. actually the background right. to the biblical mythology, right? right? So... I have, my strongest affinity is with Sumerian Babylonian mythology running through the Old Testament and, mm. and the New Testament and where it all lands up, mm. which is really weird, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's actually my metaphorical system, mm. but it's very, ma- oh, so carrying on. So, okay, he's been big brother, now he's lover. Then when I was 24, I was living in... Uh, Seattle working on the Trident Banger anti-nuclear weapons uh, campaign. And the Catholic worker people who were part of our community, um, they were part of doing the 12 Stations of the Cross at Easter. And in Seattle, they have this perfect hill with a park. The park, Mm. you know, the hill is a park. And there's this, um, the road actually winds Mm. around and around Mm. to the top of the hill, right? So it's a uh, a perfect way of, of going through the process. So the very fr- I was one of the first people to carry the cross, and it was full-size cross. Mm-hmm. And um, the next person was a young man who would have been maybe 17 or 18. And as I handed him the cross, I felt like my heart was being ripped into shreds. Mm. And so I, you know, I continued on the walk. I kept trying to think, what the hell is going on? Like, I don't know this guy, and he's quite capable of carrying the cross. Why? And all of a sudden, I realized I had stepped out of lover to mother mm-hmm. and how Mary would have felt mm. when she watched Jesus carrying that cross, Calvary. And, so, and, and then, right around that same time, I had some lesbian friends who were just at the very beginning of the Wiccan movement. And they were talking about the goddess and the god and how they interrelate. And I'm going, well, yeah, they're brother and sister, and then they're lovers. And then it's mother-son, and then it goes back to be brothers. And, mm-hmm. and, and I'm going, like, whoa. Mm-hmm. Like, my whole life, I have lived through this goddess-god relationship mythology which is very Wiccan or pagan, I mean, because mm-hmm. it's not necessarily Wiccan. Lots of pagan religions have things like that. Mm-hmm. But it's with a, Jesus, a Christian yeah. character, right? It's yeah. all very strange. Yeah, but all very um, beautiful in its repeated patterns, in that kind of more yeah. universalist. Yeah, and way. I, I also, I have, I don't, I don't necessarily, how do I put this? I also believe that everything that we image about life is metaphorical. I mean, we know this 
in terms of physics, the bed that we are now sitting on, the mm -hmm. two of us, mm -hmm. is not solid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's mm -hmm. mostly empty space. But we ha we can use the metaphor of it being solid, right? Mm -hmm. So it's all about metaphors. Um, but and so I I use reincarnation as a metaphor, but I don't absolutely believe in it. Got I it. believe there's something actually much more complicated going on. Got it. Mm -hmm. um, but within that, I have memories mm. of being Mary Magdalene watching mm. Jesus give the Sermon on the Mount. Mm. And Mary Magdalene is actually where my strongest rock is. Mm. I'm uh, with you. I'm a huge fan. Yeah. I ended up, when Ruben and I went to France, we ended up I hadn't researched this before that, but uh, we ended up going to and being in places where she had been. And suddenly I was like, I have to go to La Saint-Balme. I have mm -hmm. to go to where she was a hermitess. I have to do this. And really enjoyed, um, what's the name? Cynthia Bourgeau, The Meaning of Mary Magdalene. She wrote mm -hmm. a, a lovely book um, from a very feminist perspective of, you know, the, she was a channeler. Mary Magdalene <laughs> was a channeler and a seeress and a... Uh, you know, teacher of the teachers, apostle to apostles. And so then I was like, oh, wow, she has a powerful draw for those who are, who have affinity mm -hmm. because it's like, oh, look at, look at us just happening to walk upon the path where <laughs> she happened to always be. Like when she calls you, she, she means business. Yeah. yeah. And I actually, I rewrote the, the, the four, the four gospels. Uh-huh. Uh, from her perspective as a priestess of the tower of the Magdalene Tower in the Jerusalem Temple. Wow. Came up with the um, conclusion that all those Marys in the Bible, their name wasn't Mary. Mm. Mary is equal, equal to sister, nun, father, okay. brother, priestess, etc. I see. It's I a name see. for acknowledging that she's a priestess. Okay. And I, I wrote that as for my initiation into Wicca. <laughs> so oh. it's just like talk about backwards things, yeah, right? Yeah, full circle. So when did the fascination, uh, and or maybe it's not a fascination, that seems a bit fourieristic, but the orientation towards death and dying begin? I've told this story so many times, Carmen, I can tell it really quick. <laughs> okay. Fairly quick. Okay. I'm seven years old. I'm downstairs watching the TV when I'm not supposed to be, so I'm sitting right in front with the... <laughs> All down right low, down. you know, those big old console TVs, <laughs> yeah. right? I'm watching a 1950s, quotes, Cowboys and Indians movie, you know, with the Pioneer family coming across, and the quotes, Indian braves come along and they kill the husband, off they go, and then the wife has no other choice but clean him up, dig a grave, mm. bury him, and go on with the children. And I walked away from that saying that's the way it should happen, not the killing part. Right. But the way that the wife actually took care of him herself and buried him herself, and I have no idea why that hit me so strong. But then from then on in my life, every decade of my life, something pulled me back to death. Mm. So there's a lot of stuff in terms of the whole goddess-god relationship and the death of the god and rebirth of himself and stuff that I was beginning to feel in the lover part when I was in my teens, but I didn't understand the the mythology around it, right? And then in my 20s, I went to the Elizabeth, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross Center, 
Shantinalea in San Francisco because I had an idea that there was a third part to dying, that it wasn't just the person and the soul, mm. that there was actually that the person, the body, actually, how to put this, the personality flowed out of the body just before death. Mm. And that if we changed how people die, then the energy of that personality flowing into the environment would move us towards healthier mm. approach to death. Mm -hmm. But if people die in fear, mm -hmm. they're putting out fear. Right. Which yeah. is then composted, in, you know, into the, let's, you know, broad strokes environment, which seems to perpetuate the, it could be, if I'm reading you right, everything from people's personal relationship to death, but just like atmospherics, mm -hmm. culturally, yeah. paradigms, perceptions. It's like, oh, it's in the, the, it's in the well, and we're all drinking from the same well. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. And I don't know if, if, if that actually happens, but I have had a couple of uh, clients who were dying who I felt that rush of real hot energy coming off their fingertips and their toes. Mm. So I don't know. But anyway, mm. so but it just, it, the whole concept fascinated me. They didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> and in my 30s, I went to university and did a, a world religions and young and psychology degree. And so a lot of what I was doing, dived, dived, you know, dived into images around ma uh, death and the modern issues around death. So I was mm. doing a lot of writing and thinking about it then. And then that was also in the 80s with the AIDS crisis. And mm -hmm. so I was involved with supporting people with HIV AIDS and taking care of them as they were dying and doing their memorials and stuff mm -hmm. like that and um, in the 90s and <clears throat> it's actually for 20 years I worked in federal prison uh, chaplaincy mm. and working with primarily with lifers mm. and lifers go through the same stages of death mm. as dying people do mm -hmm. and that was sort of all very interesting to sort of watch you know how they uh, interacted with those stages because they were the same stages, but of course they're not actually physically dying, right? right? So that was sort of, you know, that that was there and sort of constantly pricking me to sort of think more about the death issue. And in the 2000s, I um, and another woman started a bedside singing project at Victoria Hospice, which was the first on um, a hospice unit in Canada. So there was kind of all of that work. And oh, actually in the late 90s, I was on the pastoral care team at the Royal Jubilee. I uh, was the first non-Christian. Oh. And that dovetails into the bedside singing because I had a particular patient who I was terrified of, actually. He was like an ex-biker, born-again Christian, mm -hmm. you know, screamed at the top of his lungs about witches and lesbians and, you know, all oh. these things that I am and I'm hiding my hands, yeah. and, you know. And um, anyways, um, I chose to keep working with him when he came back into the hospital and I realized that he was getting so exhausted that there was no way of interacting and yet he didn't want me to leave. Mm. And so I phoned down to the chaplain's office and I said, bring me a hymnal. And the chaplain said, Pashta, you would do it, wouldn't you? You're the first person who's ever asked for a hymnal, and you're the only person who's not Christian. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but I, I could sing to him, because I knew that that was important. He could pick out 
at, at the beginning. He could pick out the songs he particularly liked, and I can kind of sight read, and I've been around it enough, you know, that I sometimes I know the melody. And then when he went into full-scale dementia, um, the music was the only thing that could get to him, and his he'd be his hands would be, and the, this goes to why. I, ended up doing bedside singing too, but his hands would be wildly going all over the place and I would start singing and his hands would slow down and they would sort of circle down to his knees because that's all he had because gangrene had taken away the rest of his legs and he would start tap tapping his knees in time to what he was singing and his wife was always uh, was often with me and and she would just break down in tears because it was, you know, she would sing with me, but then break down in tears because it was the only connection mm. of him really being there. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so. So <laughs> maybe describe what it is you do in terms of working with death now. Um, almost everything and anything, mm-hmm. I think. You know, I, I spend, um, it's going to depend on <clears throat> the person and the situation, of course, but. In an, ult- uh, an ultimate situation and that I have been in, um, I would do the advanced care planning mm-hmm. with the person or the couple. Like, what, what do I want so, done with my body? body. Yeah. What, that kind of thing? Well, the advanced directive, power of attorney, representation agreement, and yes, and all of those. You know, what do I want done with my personal belongings? Who do I want to be around me when I'm dying? Mm-hmm. Who I do not want to be around mm-hmm. me? <laughs> um you know, what do I want to do before I die? What legacy do I want to live? There's all those sort of pre-things that people can start thinking about you know, long before they're terminal or, or progressing distinctly towards death. I mean, we're all progressing yeah. to death. But, yeah, you know. but how distinctly? Good, good question. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, from that knowledge, then when they move into the sort of dying period, then um, I already have all that background with mm-hmm. them, right? And mm-hmm. for some of them, um, one case, an example, I won't use names, but um, husband and wife, I did all of their advanced care planning, and we actually like worked on it for six years mm-hmm. before we finally got it the way we wanted it. Mm-hmm. And then the husband um, went farther and farther in dementia, so the wife hired me to come and sing with them every week mm. while he could still sing mm. and, and and for a period I couldn't sing because I had uh, had to have surgery on my throat um, but I would just read to him and then kind of went back to a little bit of singing afterwards once my throat was better um, and then you know he he was in residential care and he died so I got called in and we all just just were there, present around the body for several hours, and then we took the body to his uh, son's house, Mm. and we washed and dressed the body and cooled it, etc., and made arrangements for it to be transported to the crematorium, and then, you know, then there was the uh, memorial. And I still, with the wife, you know, see her on a fairly regular basis, and help her out with her aging issues and mm-hmm. so it just it includes whatever is needed mm-hmm. you know I mean for me that one of the special things I have to add into that is the music and mm-hmm. um, and and our hearing is the last sense to go mm. and music gets in much much deeper 
than words do. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. there's been um, one person I worked with and pretty much sang, well, I sang her into her actual death, but I was singing with her for a long time before that. Um, she had vascular dementia and she could not speak English. Mm. And it was just garbledygook mm. until I started singing. Uh, something like Simple Gifts. Mm -hmm. Snap right into English. Really? And she could sing with you? She could sing in English with me, but she couldn't talk. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, my, my grandmother was like that when she died a few years ago. Uh, and she, in the prime of her life, would love to go dancing at the Legion. She had lots of boyfriends, and they all had to dance, right? They didn't dance. They were useless to her. Yep. And so, Me too. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, when she was really deep into dementia, my aunts would take their iPhone to her and play Rock and Robin. And she just, she would sing and dance and that was she just loved it she lit up like an 18 year old and I love watching well I don't I don't love it it's so bittersweet watching videos like that on YouTube when mm -hmm. you see that it's like oh here's this person who's like hardly functional or verbal and then you put music on and they completely come alive part of me just wonders what is that experience like in the times when there's no music you know do you ever sit with your clients when they're in that dementia state or or even just approaching and just wonder if they're nonverbal, but you sense the presence of them, like how they're feeling? Um, I think, um, especially when, you know, when it does get to the point where they're pretty nonverbal, mm -hmm. you know, or like this other woman, she was definitely trying to be verbal, but it just wasn't coming out in English, mm -hmm. right? And, and I knew her well enough from before she got dementia to be able to kind of from her face, be able, you know, her mm -hmm. facial expressions, get a, a kind of an idea mm -hmm. of what was going on. Um, I think there's, you know, lots and lots and lots of clues, and and you know, some of them are in the person's face, in the in the person's body, how they're holding their body, um, and some of it is just pure gut intuition, mm -hmm. right? You know, like what what's, is the right song to sing and mm -hmm. how long to sing it, you know, because mm -hmm. I'll often, usually the songs I sing are fairly short because what I'm trying to do is kind of build a cradle or a canoe, you know, mm -hmm. for them then to choose, you know, they have a safe place mm -hmm. to choose the journey that they're taking mm -hmm. inside themselves, right? But not to control the journey, just to, to make a safe place. So mm. what I t usually will do is sing the song three or four times so the imagery is there, and then I'll let go of the words and just hum it, and hum it until I feel mm. like that part of the journey mm -hmm. is over, that they've... You know, metaphorically, they've decided to go to the bank and mm -hmm. sit for a while, mm -hmm. or they've decided to, you know, stop and have coffee, or mm -hmm. I mean, whatever it is, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, but yeah. Just kind of, um, and it's, I mean, it, it's this weird sort of amorphic kind of combination of gut sense and guesswork. Mm -hmm. you, know? you know who uh, actually is really dispelled, or, um, well, not dispelled, but um, quelled? some of my fears about the the anxiety that I think my, my, my fear is that if I were to go nonverbal but still be there very intellectually that I would I'm I'm a like pretty radical ragey person and so how could I possibly not be able to express? But um 
you know who inspires me is our mutual friend Michael from meeting. And so when I see Michael and it's a day where he like recognizes me really well and I say, how's it going, Michael? And, and you know, he, I, I think he has good days and bad days, right? He He's does. not full blown dementia or anything or close to that, but he has good days and bad days when it's a good day. And he remembers me uh, and I say, how's it going? And he goes, Oh, pretty quiet. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's what I want. He's like, lots of naps, lots of naps, just real quiet in here. Not a lot of thoughts, you know? And yeah. so he's aware that the thoughts have really quieted down for him, but he's feeling mostly peaceful about it, at yeah. least on that day. And I think that's, that's. Yeah. And at times blessing. he is very present, mm-hmm. you know, and when he hugs, you know, he's all there in the hug. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't question at all no. that he wants that connection with yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, and you're right. It, it's like partly intuitive, but it's yeah. If you're tracking him, you can see the moment where he goes, "Oh, I remember you very well." I, you know, I don't know your name right now, but I <laughs> totally remember you. And you see that locking on feeling, you know, and you, yeah, you feel it in the hugs. It's a good one. So, would you be willing to sing a song that you like to sing at the bedside that you think is a good um, one that, yeah, our listeners could kind of pick up the tune or hum along? Um, okay, well, actually, I'll sing one that actually comes from a Gaelic prayer that is, there's a million and one versions of it. This is the one I happen to really like. And just to add another little piece to it, um, one of the clients that I sang to, I sang to her for about a year and a half. She was totally nonverbal, no expression in her face. She could only move her right shoulder. That's all. Wow. But she watched me Hawkeyes. <laughs> And I found a way to engage with her, uh, which has to do with, with the book, which I won't explain. But the other was, I realized all this hawk eye watching that I could engage her further by actually miming what I was singing. Mm. And so that's another piece that I put into the uh, the bedside singing is to actually mime it in dance mm. for them, so they're getting the feeling of the movement as well as, mm. of the body as well as mm. the voice. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Deep peace of the rolling waves to you. Deep peace of the silent stars. Deep peace of the whispering winds to you, deep peace of the quiet earth. Let peace, let peace, let peace fill your soul. May peace, may peace, May peace keep you whole. That's beautiful. Simple. Simple. I want that one at my bedside (laughs) when I'm dying. That's a beautiful prayer. And wonderful for doing miming, too, you know, because you can do the rolling waves and the silent stars Mm. and the whispering winds and the quiet earth. And Mm -hmm. just, you know, if, if that's part of 
part of how they can engage with that particular person. It was the only way they could mm-hmm. engage, right? To just bring them along that way. Mm, There's a beautiful you. roomy one, too, about spreading your wings. And that's mm. uh, beautiful, done in mind and mm. music at the same time. Mm. Do you have your death then, like, completely pr- planned out and what you want to happen with your body? And, like, yeah, you must have thought about this a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't have a lot of it pl- uh, planned out. Hashtag, you're the mechanic with the broken down car. <laughs> yes. The cobbler whose children has no shoes. <laughs> well, I have I have all of my advanced care planning done. And, okay. you know, and I've been very, you know, my son is my rep and it's like, okay, mom, when do you want us to stop feeding and, and okay. you know, giving you liquid? Right. Exactly. You know, tell me exactly. Okay, okay. all right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've, I've done all of that. And I, mm-hmm. I do have some basic ideas about after I die. But... I, I I have some kind of sense that I just need to flow mm. with what's going on at the time. Yeah, know? right now you're on ministry and council in our Quaker meeting, and you do a lot of the planning when it comes to people's memorials and things like that. And so will you have your memorial in the Quaker meeting? Um, I'm sure. I may yeah. also have a Wiccan one. Mm-hmm. Um, but the major things I have around my death are that I uh, am definitely having a home funeral. Mm-hmm. And my kids, you just have to do it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you mean so your body is dressed and dealt with at home and cooled and home. all that? And, and it is may that be for like three days or something? Or something? Or, yeah. Yeah? Okay. yeah. Three to five days, however long they want it. Definitely, I want definitely want a green burial. Mm-hmm. Um, unless human composting comes to Canada, right. mm-hmm. then I would prefer human composting because awesome. I'm not taking up space. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and before I, I go into the ground, um, all of my jewelry has to be taken off. Mm-hmm. All of my hair has to be shaved off. Mm. And I'm going in my bed sheet and no clothes. Why your hair? Why, why your hair? Because your hair, long hair is so important to you. <laughs> I know, and that's the reason why. Oh. Because I have this feeling that if my soul doesn't quite get that I'm dead from not breathing and my heart not beating, it will know when my daughter probably shaves my hair off that I'm not here anymore. Pasha, you're making me cry <laughs> as a daughter. Oh, my God, I don't think I could do that to you. Oh, I empathize with your daughter. daughter if she I needs know. someone to drink whiskey with her at the end of the night, I will be there for her. Okay, like I'll she's, tell her. It's on record. Yep. Oh, wow. That is that is definitive. It really is for it me. Is I mean, because I'm so yeah. obsessive about long hair. My hair's yeah. only been cut twice in my life. Wow, yeah. So, you know, for... For it to to be not only cut but actually shaved off my head is mm-hmm. like you know my my soul knows yeah this time this lifetime's we're over we're done here yeah yeah exactly <laughs> we're moving on okay wow yeah. so so then you've been with uh, folks many folks that you have developed close and intimate relationships with over the years at their their bedside dying you've experienced probably your fair share of grief so how do you how do you process all that? How do you cope with grief? 
to be honest, I don't think I'm that good at coping with it. (laughs) I mean, I know all the basics and I know to give myself space. And I know, you know, I know grief does not, we don't overcome it. We move through it and transform it, right? So that, you know, we, we eventually we get to a place where we're mostly released the need for the presence of the person but we've continued the relationship mm-hmm. in our hearts with the person. And whether that's just in our hearts or whether there's synchronistic events that say they're around, mm-hmm. however that happens. Um, and I just lost track of the question. Yeah, well, how are you coping with grief? Mm-hmm. grief are you right? desensitized yeah. <laughs> because you're around so many of the dead and dying? or, or... Um, For some reason, I mean, part of your answer to one of your earlier questions, Carmen, is I don't seem to have ever had a fear of death. Mm. I mean, I have a fear of dying and it being painful and suffering Mm -hmm. and, you know, and nobody can do anything, Um, which is why I work on MAID. (laughs) But um, Sorry, why you work what? I'm, I'm... on the uh, Disability Advisory Council for Dying with Dignity Canada. Oh, okay, okay, right. Because it's like, yeah, no, we we can't have people in perilous, ongoing, painful situations. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and that's you know the the legislation at the moment at the moment leaves mm. a lot of people out. Mm. A lot of people continuing to suffer. Mm. Um, but like sadness and sorrow. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to figure out how to put this in words. There are some that have come from death. Um, one of the most important people in my life died of AIDS. And it was really, really, really difficult for me because I promised to be with him. Mm-hmm. And when he went to hospice, he asked me to come and live with him till he died. And mm-hmm. I couldn't. Mm-hmm. He was in the the U.S., in the middle U.S., and I was getting sicker and mm-hmm. just was not possible. And I think I'm still getting over that. And he died in the late 80s, mm-hmm. right? And I still, every time we have a, you know, joint death ritual where, you know, people are come to, to go on working on their grief and their, mm-hmm. their, um, their feelings about people who've died in their lives. He, he just keeps coming back over and over and over and over mm-hmm. again. And I, bit by bit, you know, I come to better terms with it. But mm-hmm. um, I've only recently been able to take him out of my address book. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. you know, he died 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm mm-hmm. still working on that one. Well, that's actually yeah. very inspiring. I'm really happy to hear that, that. That it's like, oh no, there's this like really easy magic, you know, bullet that like takes that. It's just a skill. You just learn it, and boom, you've got it, right? It's like even you actually still struggle to to let go when there's such strong affection and feeling, right? Yeah. The, the sorrow yeah. is very deep. And I, but I also think too. I mean, there is an element of being around people dying so much, especially in the eighties. You know, when mm. when AIDS was like a six month to two year death sentence, mm-hmm. that you know, part of it was just getting used to it. And mm. you know, some of some of the people that I was caring for were people that I worked with for years when mm. they were supporting people. 
mm. you know, with HIV AIDS. And so I was emotionally attached to them, but somehow the actual caring of them released a lot of the grief. I mean, mm. I think that's maybe part of why I personally feel so strongly about home funerals and people taking care of their own dead, because I see this when you're hands-on there's a gestalt that happens through the whole body. It isn't just your hands. It isn't just your head or your heart. Everything comes into play when your hands on. And I think that the... Uh, I used to be a birth, birth coach. And every time we got to the point of delivery, everything in my body would water. Every <laughs> single orifice would water, right? <laughs> just like... And it used to even happen when I'd watch babies being born on TV, you know. There's something similar that happens where it's just the whole, whole being. It isn't even just the body. It's the whole being gets involved in the process. And, and there's a whole pile of grieving and crying, but it, it's not that huge, like, concrete stone weight on your back mm-hmm. kind of feeling it's 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 like it actually uh, gets to discharge because it's yeah. in service and it's in action and it's doing something it's like tactile it's literally moving the body along and yeah. having to feel oh you know this person is gone now yeah. this is not the personality of my loved one they, they have exited and now it's my it's like my privilege to to hold and and bear the burden of what's left and make sure it's handled well it sounds like that's um very cathartic for you it is and i've seen that happen over and over again when i've done home funerals that there's always at least a couple of people who are going uh well if you really have to do this fine but i'm not going to be part of it i might stand in the corner right you know and then within a few minutes They've got a washcloth and they're right there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, before that, they say, like, oh, I can't touch a dead body. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's just, it's amazing. It happens like just like that. Mm-hmm. Like something just goes flip. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, it's gone from an ugly, horrible, morose, uh, what's the other word for deathy type? Macabre. Thing? Macabre, yeah. you know, kind of thing. What is this dead body to this sacred act? And mm-hmm. it just, it's in a flip. Mm. You know? That's very inspiring to think that we can regain our humanity in just the flick of a switch, right? <laughs> that something can happen that's like, oh, just like you at seven going, that's the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing the way it's supposed to be, Pasha. It's very <laughs> inspiring to talk to you and thank you for your song. And yeah, this has been great. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for asking me, Carmen. Mm. Mm. Oh, yeah. You yeah. too. Thank you for being in my life. <laughs> I'm so happy we finally got to record and share a conversation. To find out more about Pashta's work with uh, death care alternatives in Canada, check out the show notes on my website, carmenspaniola.com, C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. And uh, actually, Pashta's main website, which is uh, uh, quite easy, is beyonds.ca, B-E-Y. O-N-D-S dot C-A. When you go to my website, that's also where you'll learn more about the Numinous School of Intuition. You just click on the courses link in the upper navigation. So yes, the Numinous School opens for registration on June 1st. But if you'd like a payment plan, you need to get on my email list in March. That's when payment plans begin. And you know, people contact me 
all the time worried about how they're going to afford the program. And actually, usually they're shocked to learn that at least as of now in 2019, it's only $495 US for a comprehensive year-long real-time program, live calls twice a month that includes a printed textbook amongst other things, little surprises and extras. Uh, So if a payment plan is your jam, it's no problem. There's no extra charge or admin fee or anything like that. You just have to uh, start your payments in March. So to do so, you go to my newsletter and sign up there. You'll be notified when the payment plans are available. So just go to CarmenSpaniola.com. Thank you so much for listening. And uh, I'd like to do a shout out today uh, for all of my listeners who are accompanying the dying or who are facing their own dying time. Um, I hope you've felt the warmth of companionship from Pasha and I today and that you don't feel alone as you're walking that journey. Finally, I do want to just spend a moment. Uh, let's talk about quests. So my husband Ruben and I are leading quests this year from June 24th to July 6, 2019. It's a 12-day journey and in the middle you'll spend four days and nights fasting solo in the wilderness without a tent. It's a spiritual preparation um, You know, as Rumi says, you have to die before you die so you can fully live. Uh, But never fear, my friends. We'll give you extra excellent training. You'll be both physically and spiritually safe. uh, And you will emerge transformed into one hell of a force of nature to reckon with. So come gather with us and Elder Norman Ratasket, rancher Charlie Coldwell and his beautiful herd of horses. You'll sit down with us for homemade suppers and fireside chats and we'll sing you some old Gaelic songs about the moon and the night and finding our way back to feeling a little more settled, a little more home at this life. So make it easy on yourself and start your payment plans now. Um, And you know, if this isn't your year for Quest, but you'd like a taste of the experience for just a fraction of the time and expense, you might consider joining us for Vestalia, a women's summer solstice celebration. That's happening at our Quest location in the Caribou Chilcotin region of uh, BC, June 20th to 23rd. And yes, you will still get to meet Elder Norman of Shoeswap Nation, and we will still be feasting and storytelling and singing and crafting and cooking. You'll have a chance to do a mini solo ritual as you take your turn tending the sacred fire uh, sometime in the middle of the night on your own while others sleep. Just you and the fire and the stars and the coyotes to keep the flames alive until our sunrise solstice ceremony on the hill facing the mountains. So get all the details about Vestalia and Quest and the Numinous School and all of Pashta's activities at CarmenSpaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care.